Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest, surely one of the most ridiculous episodes of Hardwood Knox. This is Adam Frommel here with my fantastic co-host, Dan Favalli, and it has been one of the most ridiculous basketball days that I can remember. It started off with some unexpected news that Kawhi Leonard of the Los Angeles Clippers had suffered an unspecified ACL injury that will most likely knock him out for at least the duration of this series against the Utah Jazz. Then we learned about Chris Paul entering the COVID-19 protocol and probably missing some of the Western Conference Finals that the Phoenix Suns have already advanced to. Then Scott Brooks was unsurprisingly let go by the Washington Wizards, and then Stan Van Gundy was far more surprisingly let go by the New Orleans Pelicans. And we're recording this shortly after the Atlanta Hawks completed a 26-point comeback against the Doc Rivers's, I mean, the Philadelphia 76ers. So I think we have to start there, right, Dan? Just because that was just a wild, unexpected game. Just quickly on your recap, did you get that Donnie Nelson's no longer with the Dallas Mavericks? No, I knew I was going to forget something because what a day. That was before 12 p.m. Eastern time was out of control. I, I, I woke up a little bit later than normal. We just installed some like room darkening blinds in our bedroom. So I slept in a little bit more than usual. And there was just this deluge of news as soon as I woke up. I'll be letting sports casting know that you decided to sleep in on their dime. But yeah, do we have to start with, I mean, also the Doc Rivers and Chris Paul being dealt like playoff blows at essentially the same time. Just huh, this is all it's it's too much to take in. But yeah, Hawk Sixers, Philly leads by as much as 26. They were they had a 20, didn't they have a 20 point lead going into the fourth quarter? Was it 18? What was the lead heading into the fourth in this game? It was a lot of points. That's that's fair. Um, it's all kind of blurring together because again, we're we're doing this so quickly after, but I think it was 18 based on my quick math because the Hawks won the fourth quarter 40 to 19 for a three point win. Yeah. So that's a huge and the impetus was a combination of maybe the Sixers tried to steal too much time without Joel beat on the court, plus Lou Williams going absolutely nuclear. Lou Williams was a plus 31 in a three-point victory. That that says a lot. I'm, I'm always reticent to cite individual plus minus, especially on a single game basis, but that says a lot. He just went nuclear. I mean, he and Seth Curry were, were trading buckets during the fourth quarter. He didn't make any mistakes. He played the entire last 15 minutes or so of the game and was just unbelievable. I don't... How do you feel about that? And look, Trey Young was good. Uh, 39... He had, that was like the most casual 39 points ever. 10 of 23 shooting. He was 17 of 19 at the foul line, which was huge for him. John Collins made some really big plays down the stretch, that huge block. Uh, you're talking about his recovery there on... Did he block? No, he didn't block Embiid. Who did he block? Again, Tobias it's all Harris. blurring together. It was Tobias, yeah, Harris. It was Tobias yeah. Harris, who should have taken the corner three-pointer on that possession. Gallo anyway. with that dagger, too, down the stretch. He still looked. That signing is going to be iffy long-term, but the like that he can do that still, is my, <laughs> is my point. It's unbelievable how many takeaways I feel like we can have from this game. Just between the Lou Williams explosion... Trey Young just continuing to cement himself as an absolute stud whose resume is just not going to be questioned after this this postseason run, however long it lasts. Seth Curry, 36 points on 13 of 19 shooting, continuing to just torch the Hawks and operate as so much more than just a spot-up guy. 
And he's quickly becoming one of the most underrated contracts in the NBA, the, the biggest value contracts in the league. Ben Simmons, you know, I've, I've been a staunch Ben Simmons defender from the start, really. But it's tough to have a point of attack guard who shot four of 14 from the free throw line and was getting hacked. And they had to keep the ball out of his hands because the Hawks were trying to climb back from that 20 plus point deficit only took four field goal attempts in a close playoff game. And per StatMuse, among players in a single playoff run who have taken at least 50 free throw attempts, he now has the second worst free throw percentage in a playoff run. 32.8%, which only beats Ben Wallace in 2006, who was at 27.3%. I think I've been hesitant to engage in this conversation because the amount of defensive flexibility Ben Simmons brings, the transition offense, his ability to serve as a brilliant passer and a quality cutter, to me it often supersedes the very obvious warts in his game. But those are just becoming more and more pronounced. And I feel like this game in particular could be used as the start of a bigger conversation about the validity of having him as a part of the Sixers core. Is that too hot takey coming off this game? No, because it's clear that he and Joel Embiid work, but this is untenable during the postseason. It's not a he and Joel Embiid thing. It's a Ben Simmons thing at this point. And like you already mentioned, he wound up missing 10 free throws in game five, four or 14. And there's, you know, when you're looking at free throw percentages, you can really quibble over how many points you're really leaving on the board. 28.6% of 14 attempts is a problem. And when you're only taking four shots too throughout the game and you don't have range beyond that, which we need the Ben, this was always lazy discourse, but you, you can't want Ben Simmons to take threes when he can't make standstill wide open free throws. That can't be a thing at this point. And if Philly loses this series, the Ben Simmons trades will have to be looked at and it, the natural targets will be the Ben Simmons, CJ McCollum structure will be visited. I'm sure. Or Ben Simmons for Bradley Beal. I don't know which way you go. McCollum feels more likely just because if you are Washington, and I'm not trying to downplay Simmons' value under contract for another four more years, and he's, you know, defensive player of the year quality. He is only 24, turns 25 in July. If you're Washington, is that who you want to begin your rebuild around? I'm not even considering the fit with Russell Westbrook because there isn't one. I just don't think you you weigh that if you're thinking longer term because Russell Westbrook is not the future either. It just, you probably need to give up, my point would be, other stuff to get Bradley Beal, whereas CJ McCollum, maybe there's a chance Portland has to send you back something else. At this point, though, when you look at the, is, is it fair to call him a liability that he's become on offense? Maybe that's just the straight well, up let's, swap. Let's relay what happened during the the closing minutes of this game. We were watching together. You know, we were on Skype and we're streaming the game through the Watch TNT app and kind of talking through it together. And both of us, when the Sixers had the ball down three or four, I can't remember, with 21 seconds left, we didn't think that Simmons was going to be back on the court after a timeout was called because he's not going to shoot a three. He can't touch the ball or else Atlanta's going to foul him immediately. So that in and of itself, I think, is a, a huge indication of just how much of a perceived liability he's become. He was still on the floor for that possession. It didn't work, but he was a, he was on the floor. I'm, I'm more intrigued by the Portland framework, though, because I, I do like the idea of pairing him with Damian Lillard. That's something that 
Philadelphia doesn't have, that Washington doesn't have, unless he's playing with Beal, which is that dominate dominant point of attack creator who can pull up and create his own looks and shoot from all over the floor. Embiid is a terrific offensive talent, but that's not what he is. Right. The, here's where it would get interesting. Do you think that Philly's defense, because it was built on elite, you know, they're built on elite defense as well. Does it sustain the loss of going from a Ben Simmons to a CJ McCollum? That is a big ass difference. And Ben Simmons is somebody who you can just put on. We, we can talk about how rim protectors are probably or definitely inherently more impactful defensively. But to have that guy in Ben Simmons who you can put on anybody that you want and know that he's going to make a difference, losing that is is tough. And it feels necessary because you need the greater optionality, versatility, whatever, on offense. It's just, that's a huge drop-off. You go from Ben Simmons to Bradley Beal, you go from Ben Simmons to CJ McCollum, it doesn't matter. That is just such a massive drop-off on defense. I'd be curious whether... I think the Sixers would have a better fitting roster, but I don't know how much it it elevates them. And th- look, they did, you know, with when Joel Embiid played without Ben Simmons this year, there's lineup context to think about. They were in the 18th percentile of defensive efficiency. And so I don't know that you can just count on, hey, give Matisse Bible a crap ton more minutes, bring back Danny Green, and they'd be fine. There are probably some real issues there that they have to consider. I'm really glad that you said that proactively because my response was going to be, it wouldn't be as good, but bring back Danny Green and give Matisse Teibel more minutes and they'll probably be fine. <laughs> I mean, the development of Tyrese Maxey looms kind of large here, but Ben Simmons is incredibly important to what Philadelphia does. Def- I mean, he's one of the five to seven best defenders in the game. So, and he's probably the single most versatile defender. He's, he's got to be We've up seen there. that in the data. Just the matchup data alone indicates as much that he covers a wider variety of assignments and covers them well than anyone else. Um. Yeah. I. So I think you, at this point, though, you probably just need it for the, the variance in how your team is run, though, right? You look at that move seriously if you wind up losing to the Hawks like like You're this. not moving Tobias Harris. You're not moving Embiid. You probably have to make a change if you have a series loss to Atlanta with this many blown leads, regardless of what's going on with Embiid's health. Now, I think the thing we aren't talking about, what if a sign and trade for Kyle Lowry is on the table? You can Mm, figure out the hard cap stuff. Your package obviously isn't going to include Ben Simmons. Is Is that the preferential route to giving up Ben Simmons? That package is going to cost you at least one of Maxie and, and Tybal, at least one of them. Plus, right. you probably have to double sign and trade Danny Green because I don't know what your salary filler is now because Danny Green's coming off the books. You're not moving Tobias Harris in that deal either, I wouldn't think. I would say that that's probably the preferential route. I just don't know how realistic it is post-trade deadline because there are going to have to be other money mechanisms in there to make it work. Yeah. I'm getting slightly distracted just because I'm seeing all these Ben Simmons tweets coming in. And just to relay a few that were great, I saw somebody say, and I, I, I'm already blanking on who it was, that Simmons, who shot 4 of 14, actually shot better from the line this game than he did the previous game, where he only made 20% of his looks. And uh, Anthony Doyle tweeted, Ben Simmons has missed more free throws this year in the playoffs than Steve Nash missed in the playoffs his entire career. 
Ben has shot 67 free throws. Steve Nash shot 440. That is wild. And again, I'm not really here for the Ben Simmons slander because as we mentioned at the top of this segment, like there's so much good that he does, but it just speaks to the the growing problem. There's, there are, this would be counter to our one discussion where we said there are obstacles for every star and should just accept them. This is one of those borderline, is it an unworkable op- obstacle? And the question there would be, can they make this team more playoff proof on the margins without making that wholesale change? And the Kyle Lowry sign and trade is the biggest, best yeah, move I, I can think of. I agree. I agree. I, I... I hesitate to take any one star-level player, and Ben Simmons is a star-level player, and just say that you can't win a title with them. The I think but the issue he's, is... He's pushing closer to that category unless there's a perfectly constructed roster around him that can account for the very serious flaws. You know, you could get away with the hack-a-shack and the hack-a-Dwight Howard and, and the hack-a-Ben Wallace's because they're not primary ball handlers. But that with Ben Simmons... If you can't have the ball in his hands at the end of a game, you cannot play him. Yeah, and that that's where it's like, I don't know that moves on the margins solve this team, which is where it gets interesting. So it would have to be the Kyle Lowry type move, or that's why you're visiting the Ben Simmons trade scenarios. Because I don't think that you can just be like, hey, let's can we get Austin Rivers or Alec Burks in here and be fine? I don't know if it's that, you know, maybe I would say the lowest end game changer for them would be an Evan Fournier. And I'm not even sure like that does it. So if they lose this series, which they haven't lost yet, by the way, game six is, is, is we, it? we should note that, that it is still eminently possible. And this team seems that Philadelphia so much, could win this, this series. This team seems so much better at the top than Atlanta, but Atlanta has, you know, Bogdanovich, Bogdanovich is in foul trouble and struggling they just have other guys to go to. There's just so many weapons on this team right now. Maybe Joel Embiid, had he had a louder second half after dropping 24 in the first, I just kind of, you know, the way this, it seemed like Philly might after game two that this was going to be not a shorter series, but like, oh, they'll win in six, but it'll be a decisive six. And it's, it really felt like that for most of game five. Kudos to Atlanta for having two just gutsy come from behind victories in the playoffs so far against Philly. Like that shows real. I think that experience is really important to them. I think it also stems from the lack of experience because up and down this roster, it's filled with key contributors who have not been in the playoffs before. And when you haven't been in the playoffs before, you don't necessarily know how to win these tight games, but you also don't know how to lose them. If you watched, but I'm sure you watched Bucks Nets game five. I know the takeaway was, oh, why isn't Giannis taking on the Kevin Durant assignment and this, that, the other thing? There are two things. I don't know that it's Giannis's decision. There's a coach involved here, and I'm not trying to lay that at Mike Boonholzer's feet because I don't know if I would do the same thing. I would say more aggressively double, triple Kevin Durant. James Harden is playing on one leg. He made one field goal in game five. Leave him, or and Giannis is most disruptive as a helper, so let him, putting him on, and the other thing with putting him on KD I would argue you still have to bring help or that it's just not going to matter because KD is going to go off. He's going to have 49 points on certain nights, no matter who's defending him. The, the things to me that I think were the difference makers, I'm curious what you think. The stuff I just mentioned on defense, be more aggressive going after KD then. Um, double, triple, just throw everybody at him. And be smarter on offense. 
there is everyone's pointing to that viral moment where James Harden waved um, help defense off in the post on Drew Holiday. That can't be the way that you're attacking a hobbled James Harden is by going after him in his statistically he is a great fa- post factually defender. undeniably best defensive position. And I'll I'll note this: get into your offense quicker because Milwaukee during the excuse me the regular season. They led the league in the share of their buckets that came between 18 and 15 seconds in the shot clock early. So it's like not always transition, semi-transition, just before the defense gets set. In this series, uh, they are at 19.3% of their buck uh, share of their shot attempts are coming during that range. And no, you don't want to force it, but that is a difference. And you even look at their earlier shots where you're looking at between 22 and 18 seconds in the shot clock as well. Those numbers are down in this series. You have to react quicker there. And then I do think there's the level of, can you be more inventive? Like Giannis just needs to, the jumper's got to stop. I I don't like saying that. I'm a big believer and advocate in volume changes the way defenses have to defend you. But I would argue his perimeter volume right now is hurting the way that the Bucs can be defended. And they need, you know, go at James Harden more if he's going to be on the floor for that long. Just, it just, just feels like one dumb decision after another. Right. The and simplest I, one is is how you defend KD. Like I, I don't like the idea of assigning Giannis as the primary defender on him because that's not even his strength. Like he, for all of his defensive gifts and for all of his defensive accolades, he is not the greatest isolation stopper. He's a terrific help defender. And if you put him on KD as a primary matchup, you're taking away his biggest strength. And it's a strength that you need. It was baffling to me that there wasn't an in-game adjustment to send help off of Harden or other players against a scorching hot Kevin Durant. And then I realized that Mike Budenholzer was still coaching and I was a little bit less shocked because he's the master of not making any in-game adjustments whatsoever. This just, it feels like a dumb basketball team, an extremely talented, dumb basketball team. I mean. That might be fair. Mike Budenholzer is not surviving this. You know, his job is gone if they don't win this series. I don't. I would be very surprised if he comes back. And I don't know that coaching makes all the difference, but it feels like there were enough mistakes here, given the injuries to Brooklyn. Yeah, James absolutely. Harden missing time and then playing on one leg and then no Kyrie. And but there's the opportunity- been no strategic adjustment. There's been no rotational adjustments. There's no changing up how you're attacking Brooklyn's defense or lack thereof. There's been no tactical switches when Kevin Durant is going off. It's just, okay, we'll let him cook a different defender in a one-on-one scenario. We'll let him curl off a screen and hit another three as we try to fight through it without sending any help his way. It just, It's really frustrating to watch a team as talented as the Bucks have all of that talent be squandered both by in-game execution and the lack of coaching adjustments. And it's almost like we saw a similar story unfold with the Atlanta Hawks team that was coached by Mike Budenholzer. Or it's like the Spurs immediately went on one of the best championship runs of all time. Once Mike Budenholzer left them after a championship collapse. Some coaches are phenomenal regular season coaches and don't belong in the sidelines in the playoffs. And I want to make it clear that, I thought Giannis played a smarter game than he has a lot of this series on offense anyway. And I, I'm just not laying the defensive responsibility at his feet. If you want, I don't think that's the answer, but if you want Giannis to be the primary defender on Kevin Durant, I don't think that's a, has to be a Giannis decision where he has to go to the coach and tell Mike Bunos, I want to defend Durant, like make that your call. So that was just criticism. I didn't agree with. And I thought Giannis 
probably had one of his better playoff games on offense overall in game five and to waste that when the other thing I'll argue James Harden will probably be just as hobbled he is planning to play in game six I think I saw Joe Harris has been low-key terrible and Joe Harris isn't going to be low-key medium-key terrible okay he's not going to be like that forever like that's you're going to get a good Joe Harris game I would argue and then what happens but just because you you've shown you can't hang with Brooklyn when they're when they're making shots and so I do do you give the Bucks what percentage chance of winning do you give the Bucks in game six I still think that the talent they have at their disposal is significant enough that I would give them like a 30 percent chance of winning the series what percentage know, chance is, is Mike Boonholzer the head coach in Milwaukee next season I think that would be about 30 <laughs> percent those numbers might be slightly correlated I'm wondering if it's lower just because if they lose this, even if they force a game seven, just to look back at this series and the missed opportunity then in game five. That's probably a smarter answer. The other thing from this series, you and I both have picked against the Nets and gotten a bit of criticism for doing so just because the offensive talent they have at their disposal is overwhelming. I don't know about you, but I still don't know that I have a good feel for how good this Brooklyn team is. It might be because their three best players have played in fewer than 15 games together. That might be. And that's part of it. But the other part is like, I'm not sure how good this Milwaukee team is in a postseason scenario. It just, it doesn't feel like we've seen Brooklyn be fully tested and see just how well it can play with the stars all on the court. Which is kind of terrifying, but... There, look. I mean, if you're like, even at this, even in this hobbled state, they are fully capable of winning a title, and we've said that from the start. Yeah, but like, here's even the... if we're picking against them, like it's not to say they have no shot at winning a title or anything. You have to be. I, just, ca- I don't oh, know ahead. how much that opinion has changed. Yeah, it almost this everything you're saying though adds to the element of I would say Philadelphia and Milwaukee specifically have to be will be kicking themselves if they get bounced in this round because that might be it'll be one of the best chances you have of beating Brooklyn just because yeah. Philly meeting them in the next round, but if they beat the Hawks, which <laughs> we don't know that they will anymore <laughs> to go up against some version of a Nets team. That's not at full strength when they have those three players as big. And then Milwaukee to actually be in a position to have a three to two lead on this team. Like that, these are opportunities that they just might not get back. I'm not, I think injuries are probably going to be a big three long thing in Brooklyn just when you look at these three guys Kevin Rant with the Achilles just amazing that he's doing this but we didn't even mention that he just had a 49 point triple double absolutely wild and played the entire game it's incredible what he's done but just having that Achilles injury in his rear view and we saw him deal with some lower extremity injuries this year James Harden has been ripe for injuries just because of his usage the past seven eight years however long it's been and then Kyrie Irving's just always had stuff it's various stuff it's not necessarily all reoccurring or chronic but he's always had stuff at the same time i don't know that you could say you're ever going to get a point where what 1.5 1.75 of the net's three stars are injured right that's just opportunity it might not I'm come right back. there with you i i do think that in, in our previous episode i i said that when it comes to the crystal basketball rankings we do at nba math the coveted 12 we felt like there are like seven or eight options for it Unless something changes, it's going to be Kevin Durant. And that one game was enough to to convince me that he is he is getting my vote this year. 
He can't for me. The, the availability stuff matters. And I just think he's too much of a wild card there still. Maybe playing 48 minutes in a playoff game and knowing that a lot of the stuff he went through, aside from the least health and safety protocols this year, that might have been more load management and precautionary than actually a red alarm. I'll think I'll give more weight to it, but he he's that dude. I look, I could not I was shocked he played the entire game. I'm not gonna lie. I am curious, and this is a good segue into the injuries we have. So Kawhi Leonard dealing with a right ACL injury. They're calling it a sprain as of now. I hope it stays that way because a tear surgery there of any kind puts next season in jeopardy for him. And then Mike Conley had a setback in his recovery from a hamstring injury. Don't know when we're going to see him again. And then Chris Paul is in the league's health and safety protocols now. John Gambadoro did say that Chris Paul returned a positive test. I think it's also been out there that Chris Paul is also vaccinated. So that's, you know, make of that what you will. I do believe that the the quarantine periods are shorter for people that have been vaccinated. He might just need to return two negative tests, or this is a situation where they have so much time before the start of the next series. He could be back by game two or three at the latest, but hopefully he's just okay. If he, ret- if he returned a positive test, hopefully he just is going to be fine as soon as possible. These I think injuries- it's important to note, on that on that point, I think it's important to note that I don't like engaging with the disingenuous arguments from the anti-vax contingent, but being vaccinated does not guarantee you that you're not going to be infected with COVID-19. It means that if you are, you first of all, you have a lower chance of that transmission, but even if you do, the effects are more minimized, right? We see We don't see the deaths or the hospitalizations that are associated with the illness, but it is not an indication that the vaccine doesn't work, that somebody tested positive after being vaccinated. I agree with everything you said, mostly because it's, it's true. That's a large part why I agree with you. The, and I don't want to conflate the injuries with this. So let's sort of start with the, the injuries. It's just, it's, it feels like they're determining these playoffs more so than usual. And I'm just, we're watching game five between the Clippers and the jazz unfold now Assuming Kawhi is out for the rest of the series, do you give them a chance of actually winning this series? And I know the Jazz might be missing Mike Conley for the rest of the, the series, if not year, as well. They just, Kawhi Leonard and Mike Conley, it's, just, it, it's a big difference. And Kawhi, by the way, he spent the most time of any Clipper guarding Luka Doncic in round one. He spent more time than anyone entering game five on the Clippers guarding Donovan Mitchell. That's, that's who you're losing, in addition to everything he's done offensively, which is everything. I'm probably not the right person to ask that question just because I had the Jazz winning it all before the playoffs started, and I'm not deviating from that opinion now. My son's uh, title pick is looking mighty dicey at the moment. With unless Chris- Paul is able to return, which we just really don't know. How many but- times has that looked, and I'm not going to you know, do a victory lap for them getting this far, I, because I believe on the podcast we did, I had Suns Sixers in the finals with the Suns winning. I've definitely wavered on that a bunch of times. And Chris Paul has thrown me for like 80 different worlds this postseason. The shoulder injury, him not really shooting. I really just hope he's okay from the COVID. It just sucks that it feels like injuries are having such a a staunch impact on these playoffs, more so than usual. I know the NBA came out with a statement that there's been the injury rate was similar to the past three seasons. We have not had, we will have to go back. When's the last time we had 11 all-stars? I think it was never miss we, games in the seen, playoffs. We've already seen that cited as the most that we've had in NBA history. Um, but to answer your original question, 
without Kawhi Leonard, I don't think the Clippers stand much of a chance here. Maybe that ages poorly because Paul George is remarkably talented and has been shooting the lights out. And with an even greener light without Kawhi taking shots, maybe he shoots his way through this series. It's definitely possible. But the talent disparity is huge, even without Mike Conley on the court. This this Jazz team remains so good on both ends of the floor. You know, Boyan Bogdanovich currently has 23 points on 7 of 9 shooting from downtown. They've scored 56 points with just under six minutes left in the second quarter, and Donovan Mitchell has taken two shots. And we can't forget about the defense because there are so many quality defensive pieces on this team with Rudy Gobert protecting the back end. Joe Ingles is able to thrive in virtually any defensive situation. Royce O'Neal just hustles his ass off on every single possession, and it just keeps going from there. This is a really good team, and I feel like we keep saying that, and there's still so much hesitance to accept that the Jazz are a legitimate title threat. And we're probably going to be dealing with a similar conversation in the Western Conference Finals should they eliminate the Clippers, because then it'll be like, oh, like would they really have gotten by the Clippers if Kawhi Leonard had been healthy? Yes, they they, they probably could have. <laughs> There, I, that's why if you're here in Milwaukee, I know you're missing Dante DiVincenzo, but all your best players are healthy that we know of and just wild circumstances. I am the Hawks got all their injuries out of the way during the regular season. That's why they're having success now. And Aside from DeAndre Hunter and Cam Reddish, this team still isn't at full strength. Right. No one's at, no one's ever at full strength, technically, in the playoffs, but like they are missing. DeAndre Hunter is their best wing defender, and it's not really all that close. So that's that's monstrous for them, too. I, on these injuries, we had the shortest offseason in sports history for the NBA. The back half of the schedule was brutal for a lot of teams. Did you see what LeBron James tweeted about mm-hmm. everything today? I'm curious as to where you land on that. And since I didn't tell you, I was going to ask you, I will preface it with my, and they're actually quick thoughts. There is a duality here because I am going to say there. this was collectively bargained. And I find it very hard to believe that Perhaps the best player in NBA history didn't have his voice heard throughout all of this when the Chris Paul is the vice president of the Players Association, right? Is he not the the actual president? Um, I'll Google that. I don't know why I'm getting it confused. But regardless, I'm pretty sure Chris Paul is also the godson of one of LeBron's kids. So the the godfather of one of LeBron's kids and the president of the Players Association, LeBron didn't have his word heard. And this was collectively bargained. So I want that out. The players, they had a financial stake in this just like the league just like the teams did the duality here comes into play where just because these are millionaires that doesn't mean they had all this leverage their window to make money is incredibly finite and there are players that don't make as much as lebron james like these there are guys that might only be in the league fewer than five seasons there are guys that are making less than they're they're making a couple million dollars a year which again that's a lot of money but they're in their limited window to make that and so there's going to be the urgency there. And regardless, you don't have the same leverage as billionaire owners who are going to wield most of the control in these situations. So I understand both sides of the thing. I also, people have tried to point out that LeBron's been a hypocrite with this. I believe he was in favor of canceling the season when they were in the bubble, that that was something he tried to do. And he didn't want to play in the All-Star game, even though he did. So he's been consistent in that messaging. I just find it very hard to believe that he wasn't heard given his stature and his relationship with Chris Paul. So there is the, it has to be noted this was collectively bargained. But the reality of the situation is, here is, this is millionaires versus billionaires. 
and the billionaires are going to have more influence over the decisions than these millionaire, let's call them what they are, employees. I don't have that much to add beyond that. I mean, I, we've seen that there's a correlation between shortened off seasons and, and increased levels of soft tissue injuries. At the same time, like it, it is important to acknowledge that a lot of the most prominent injuries that we're seeing are occurring with players who have lengthy injury histories. Kawhi Leonard has had a lot of issues with his lower extremities dating back to his time with the San Antonio Spurs. James Harden and Kyrie Irving have not been perfect pictures of health. You know, the list goes on and on. Chris Paul, like, when has he ever been healthy for an entire playoff run? Um, it's it's impossible to infer causation from correlation here, and that applies to both the injury histories and the shortened offseason. So it's it's easy to immediately criticize the league for kind of viewing this whole season as a, a blatant money grab by wanting to fit in the full schedule and have a jam-packed schedule, but... I just I don't think we have enough information to truly know. And it does matter that it was collectively bargained, but even that doesn't mean that there was unanimity among the individual sides. You know, for all we know, it was a 51-49 split among the players to sign that to sign and ratify that agreement. We we don't have that data and there's just a lot of information that that you and I just aren't going to be privy to that would help inform this conversation. I do think it this is, you know, the NBA is just not different from any other business. And I'm not saying this is acceptable, but they are going to operate in, 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 in their fine. They're going to operate with their financial interests in mind, first and foremost, that that is just going to happen. I'm not supporting that. I feel like that's the reality of the situation. I don't know what in a perfect world. Yeah, this would have been spaced out. Maybe the season gets spread out longer or there's fewer games, but they needed 72 to get the regional network TV deals. That's why we had the bubble regular season in the first place. The bubble suns don't happen if they didn't have to meet that requirement. There are a lot of factors at play here. I don't know if there was a feasible because we can, we can map out the ideal solution to all this. I just don't know how realistic that is. So I, it's it it's a shitty situation. I hate to see all these injuries. I will say the NBA coming out with that injury data just seems like wildly ill timed. Like you yes. need to read the room there. That was yes. that was pretty poor form in my book. Agreed. Agreed. We can move on to and I, look the thoughts on the Suns without CP3. Whatever time they have to navigate without him is going to be a problem because they're either going to be facing if they face the Jazz, it's a huge problem. If they face the Clippers without Kawhi, maybe that's more of an even fight at that point. What, what, who I would are you think taking? so, but it's a, it's a, again, it's hard to speculate on this one without more information because we have no idea if he's going to miss time and if he's going to miss time, how much is it going to be? It's pure speculation at this point. The Let's get to the coaching changes and the front office change in Dallas. Washington, I think we can blow through fairly quickly. Scott Brooks, it felt like his days were numbered there. And I'm not sure if all the other moves around the league where you saw Stan Van Gundy being fired after his first year sort of expedited the situation because he wanted to put his name in one of these openings before they're all scooped up. But it felt like he just, given that, I don't know where, you know, I'm sure people are going to have him in their, if we power rank coaches, he's probably bottom five around there. People don't think he's very inventive on either end of the floor. You look at the situation the Wizards are in. Bradley Beal can be a free agent in 2022 player option. They'll try and extend him this summer. 
Don't know if it'll work. If you're the Wizards, you're probably not going to give him a long-term commitment because you don't know what's going to happen with Bradley Beal. I don't know what he's done during his time there that would make you want to give him a raise off of his $7 million salary. If you're Scott Brooks, you don't want to accept a short-term deal because you want security in the event that this all goes to shit, which it might, given Bradley Beal's situation, and his agent, Warren Legary, that's very much how he operated. When you even just look at Mike D'Antoni in, in Houston. And I think John Hollinger put it, there's like very high Silas potential in the Wizards job, just like the the Blazers job. So that one, I, I don't really make anything of it other than I'll be curious to see who they get to have interest in that job. Because unless it's a first timer or someone with not a lot of NBA head coaching experience, they're probably going to have to back up the Brinks truck in years and annual salary to get them to commit without knowing what Bradley Beal is going to do. That calculus, of course, changes should Beal sign an extension or declare that he's going to come back. I wholeheartedly agree. I, I don't think that's going to be a particularly appealing job for virtually any candidate except for the first-timers and those internal promotions that we could see. But the writing was on the wall with Scott Brooks. I mean, he we criticized it when it, when he was hired, and we've criticized him a lot since then. And the ceiling was was limited with him in place. And it dates all the way back to his time with the Oklahoma City Thunder, where I think the reason he had that job in the first place was because Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook were really good. But even then, it felt like the decision-making, the the X's and O's, the application of analytics, just everything was was lackluster at best. So I'm not I'm not surprised by this one. I think he's he he is what he is as a coach, which is probably better suited for more of an assistant role that can be focused on player development. And that Wizards job is going to be an interesting one to monitor because I feel like it might be the most likely of the many, many openings to result in somebody who is just a totally off-the-radar candidate. The Stan Van Gundy firing was a, was very surprising. I would very argue. surprising. Just I don't think I don't think he did a particularly good job with the Pelicans. There were things that he did well. He was the one who saw that you could unleash Zion Williamson as a point forward and really open up his game and the offense in general, but. He was billed as a defensive-minded coach and was not able to build a quality defense in his one season in New Orleans. That said, a lot of the blame has to rest with the front office because this roster composition never made too much sense. So I didn't think that he in any way deserved to be fired, and I was surprised that he didn't get a second year with this team. But we also see the reports about you know him and Brandon Ingram chafing a little bit. And there wasn't the progress that we expected to see. So I'm also not totally shocked by it after I had a little bit of time to process. I actually am because, it. I mean, the, the stuff with him not vibing, it seems, with New Orleans' two most important players in Zion and, and Brandon Ingram makes sense. Also, it does seem like, I think this was from Roge's reporting, that the front office were the ones pushing to put the ball in Zion's hands. This roster made very little fucking sense. Very and little sense. The blame has to fall at the altar of the front office there. I know a lot of Pelicans fans thought the, the spacing up front trope was overrated. You need to have a better front court player to to complement Zion Williamson. You also need more wings on this team. Who were the wings for for the Pelicans for most of the season? I'm not even looking at, you know, I, it's it's Josh Hart and Brandon Ingram is what I'm getting at. They're 
towards later in the year, like, yeah, it was great to have the, the Najee Marshall story, but like Wes Awundu was on, on the payroll, although I'm a big Wes Awundu guy, and like that was only for part of the season. Uh, there just weren't a ton of wings. It was Josh Hart, Brandon Ingram, and, and that's it. And why did you extend Steven Adams? What, what was that trade made for? And ultimately, what's going to be interesting about this team moving forward, if you're the Pelicans, you should want to bring back Lonzo Ball and Josh Hart. But if you pay them what their cap holds amount to, which is about a combined $36 million, and I would argue that's eminently possible they cost that much because of the offer sheets I think Lonzo could get in restricted free agency, you're all of a sudden at the tax line. And so if you get yourself in a situation where you either, one, have to grease the wheels of a trade for Bledsoe or Adams by giving up assets to clear money because the Pelicans aren't paying the tax. It's just not happening. Or you let one of those guys walk for nothing or are forced to sign and trade them. That's just bad form too. And so I don't put that blame on Stan McGundy. I don't know how much better he was supposed to coach this roster. Again, if he wasn't resonating with their most important players, that matters. And if there was a resistance to putting the ball in Zion Williams' hands, that doesn't really make a ton of sense because that was clearly their best route. And if there was still resistance after it was working, and I do think the novelty wore off a little bit because of the Pelican spacing, that's still a roster. That's a cosmetic issue that falls at the feet of the the front office. So that's why I was surprised. The other thing here, and I, I think this is probably a good sign, he had three years left on his deal. And so the fact that they're willing to move on from what they deem a mistake, if that's what this front office deems it now and early, props to them for making that call instead of doubling down or just feeling uncomfortable going into next year and delaying what might be inevitable. I'm not ready to pat them on the back for making that call just yet, though. Let's see who they hire, because are they going to try and cheap out now because they're paying another coach for an additional three years? And we've seen, I don't want to get into the names mentioned because there's been a ton already, but but their assistants are supposed to be part of the equation, including Teresa Weatherspoon. I will say that it's the NBA, like it's time. Like there needs to be a female head coach. I'm not advocating which one it needs to be. It, it has to happen already. And I hope that um, there's always that suspicion of, I hope that these teams, you know, Becky Hammond's linked to, to interviews in the past. We've seen Carol Larson, I think tangentially linked to the Celtics. This shouldn't just be for like appearances. It shouldn't be an, an interview aesthetic. These are brilliant basketball minds. I hope they receive legitimate consideration. It's time for the NBA to have a female head coach. It's, it's, it's long past due. I just don't know what direction they're going to go in with a, a head coach now because of one, their timeline's wonky just because Zion's ready. To, he's so good. He's ready to win now. And John Hollinger has mentioned this, that there's stuff in new Orleans that he's unhappy. A lot of it apparently had to do with the spacing, which I don't blame him. The other part was injury management, but I think just his health to kind of close the year. Um, you know, I don't know. That just might be an issue of a young kid wants to play and they're trying to be overcautious. I don't know how much to fault them for. The situation is just weird. And I'm very interested to see what direction they go with their head coaching spot after they got rid of Stan Van Gundy, one, so quickly, but two, with three more years left on his contract. I will say that I, I hope Stan Van Gundy does whatever makes him happy, whether that's coaching a team or not. But I really hope we get to see him in the broadcast booth again soon because that man is a treat when he broadcasts basketball games. They that's, need to, that's what I, I want out of this situation. Like, And, and I know many other people said the same thing on, on Twitter and elsewhere immediately in the aftermath of the firing. But let's get him behind a microphone again, because there are some people who are just ridiculously good at being eloquent in a way that's informative and entertaining. And he checked those boxes. I would love to see. I know people don't love uh, Jeff Van Gundy, but I'd love to see a dual Van Gundy game called. That's something I would tune in for as well. I'm going to plead the fifth on this one. Look, uh, any Stan Van Gundy game is great. I just think that would be 
It would be it would be an improvement over Mark Jackson, Jeff Van Gundy. Yeah, but that's a not exactly the best bar to set there. Let's get to this last thing, then, unless you have anything else to add here. Not really. The Pelicans need to improve. Like, they need to make changes to their roster. I'm going to say flat yes. out. You should want Lonzo Absolutely. and Josh Hart back. But it's as I mentioned, if those, if you lose those guys for nothing or forced to sign and trade them or use assets to clear money to keep them, that's not Stan Van Gundy's fault. The spacing was not I'm Stan Van Gundy's fault. I'm fully in favor of bringing Lonzo Ball back. You know, I think we've we've made that clear in the past. But you got to do something to, to get a little more stretchiness out of your front court. And that Steven Adams extension is just looking worse and worse by the day. But as for the last piece of news with Donnie Nelson fired from the It Mavericks, was a mutual parting of the ways. Mutual Adam. parting of ways, whatever it may be. He's no longer there after two after two plus decades. And I will admit that given the plethora of news items that we were inundated with all day that I have not read up on this one as much as the others. So I think I've seen some hints that like Luca was pissed about the decision some people were saying on on TV appearances in the aftermath and that this had been planned since Sunday so it wasn't a response to the exposé from from Tim Cato and co at the Athletic about the shadow GM in place in Dallas um redacted so, I, so we'll call him redacted yeah so I just I don't I'm still processing this one the there's also been stuff that Luca hasn't spoken to anyone, so we don't know if he's upset. He's expected to speak with the media tomorrow when he announces his intention to play for the Slovenian national team. So we can wait on, by the time this podcast is out. Maybe he'll have said something by then. But Mark Cuban doesn't get to call that report bullshit and then have this happen a few days later. That doesn't get to happen. No. There, there was one. I mean, there's clearly some I have structural many, unrest. I have many thoughts on that topic. A lot of which I'm gonna I'm gonna keep holstered. Well, that's disappointing. Their search for a new head of the front office, because all these titles are is it you know team team president, general manager, um you know head executive vice president of whatever basketball operations whatever you're gonna want to call them. I wonder what type of interest this job will draw, because. First of all, Donnie Nelson's been with the Mavericks forever, and I someone mentioned this on a podcast that I listened to. Cuban hasn't run this team without a Nelson in charge over the past quarter century, whatever it's been. And I think the impression around the league is that he can be difficult to work with because he's so involved, or if there is a situation with Redacted where he's allowing Redacted to have so much say or influence in this like ambiguous role, I would call the title of redacted was just so bizarre. I am curious. Like if Masai Ujiri is looking around and I would argue all indicators, most indicators are that he'll stay in Toronto unless he has political aspirations that draw him away from basketball, which is totally possible. There will be people that want them out. There's Luka Doncic is there. This is huge, but I'm just curious what type of names that's going to draw or just what direction they go in overall because this is a new situation for them they've had that steadiness in the front office aside well i don't want to say aside from it's not an aside there have been stuff going on behind the scenes including the the sexual harassment um stuff that was exposed are we like two years removed from that that was just a wild story I think we're more than that now just just to be clear those are the pervasive cultural issues around that that cuban was somehow unaware of despite being super hands-on in every other area that's the ones we're talking about here. 
that was just and even when I was disappointed when he went on, I can't remember if it was the jump or ESPN and like the questions were just they felt like softballs there too about that. But like there have been issues. I'm saying there have been issues. I want to make that clear in Dallas and you laid it out like these they're they're not cultural warts. There's something worse. There are issues of morality here and basic human decency. There also just haven't been a lot of changes and maybe that's been part of the problem in Dallas. I don't know basketball wise is what I'm looking at now how they're going to handle this search and who will be interested in it. There will be interest because Luka Doncic is a top five basketball player. I The other thing that's come out of this is there's been no extension talks between Luka and the Mavericks just yet. Look, maybe Luka's unhappy because he was close with Donnie Nelson with a relationship, I believe, that existed before he ever came to the NBA. I don't doubt that maybe he's upset. He's signing an extension. He's taking the guaranteed $200 million. This is not, the season's been over for a second. He can't sign that extension yet. Anyway, there's, let's just, he's not leaving. This isn't going to be the impetus for him to leave. If he used his leverage to be like, no, I'm going to sign my qualifying offer and then I'm going to leave, he'd be the first player of his caliber to do that. We saw Greg Monroe do it and it kind of sort of worked out for him, but not really. He did get money from Milwaukee. Christos Porzingis threatened to do it and the Knicks took it seriously. I highly doubt that he would have signed the qualifying offer coming off an ACL tear, but that's just my, I'm just guessing there. It's not going to happen. And so I do think the Magic, uh, the Mavericks, you're on the clock with Luka because he's so good and you want to create this unrest. And because the process of pre-agency now happens or unfurls two years in advance of free agency instead of just one, yeah, you're automatically on the clock because Luka's just amazing and you want to get to a point where two or three years down the road, he maybe tries to exert some premature leverage or anything along those lines. This is not, I will be flabbergasted if this is an impetus for him deciding to try and leverage his way out from Dallas early. Let's not make it about something it's not going to be. I'm right there with you on that. I, it would be unfathomable for him to turn down that kind of extension, especially since we've seen in this player empowerment era just how easy it is for players after signing those extensions to still force their way out if they so choose. So that that feels like making something way more of this story than than should exist. But at the same time, like I just I I'm continuing to lose more and more confidence in Cuban's governorship of this team. I just it, it frustrates me to no end that you know after four years of him being very being a very outspoken critic of Donald Trump and his relationship with the fake news media that he's engaging in those same tactics you know just the immediate calling of bullshit of the uh the Tim Cato and the athletic story and then and apologies if I'm slightly misconstruing this since I don't have screenshots or anything but like he posted a second response to that story that was that said something along the lines of him never being asked to comment on it or only asked to comment on it after the story was published and then quickly deleted that and amended it to say that, you know, he wasn't given much of an opportunity to or something that was a little bit more toned down, but providing no specifics. And we've seen it throughout his tenure, whether it's the denying of the the pervasive sexual harassment culture that existed within the organization that he was so apparently hands-on with, except that he didn't know that that was happening or on a far less impactful level, him talking about how when they didn't want it, when they didn't manage to sign one of the many free agents that they've missed out on that, oh, we didn't really want that player anyway. You know, like 
whatever. He was never really a pursuit, even though all the reports indicated to the contrary. It's just it's harder to believe that anything that he's saying on these topics is genuine. There's always the grain of salt, too, when team governors, front office executives, players are commenting on their own team that they have to take the approach of, oh, this isn't happening or it's more positive right, than the pictures painted. But this was just like the timing of it all. You don't you don't get to you don't get to play that card. The last question I want to ask you that's not related to this, but it's quick and definitely more lighthearted. What is the most attractive coaching opening right now between Portland, Washington, Milwaukee, (laughs) Orlando, uh, Boston, New Orleans, and which one am I missing? Am I missing anyone? Uh, And Indiana, Indiana. excuse me. If Milwaukee is available, that's the answer, just because you have the most premier talent who's locked up with a lot of complimentary secondary talents other than that portland i think if we're i mean boston is going to be a coveted job just because it's the boston celtics and they have such a indelible legacy within the nba history but portland still has damian lillard and cj mccollum and whether you're building around that core or using mccollum as trade bait for another star that probably gives you the highest immediate upside new orleans probably gives you more long-term upside with zion williamson and brandon ingram but there's still a lot to parse out with a roster construction that doesn't make any sense portland's at least makes sense even if the upside is a little bit more limited i don't want to touch washington or portland with a 10-foot pole if i'm a coach just because of the teardown potential there and i know dame has another four years left on his deal that extension would it be a teardown in portland or would it be a restructuring because I don't think you're trading McCollum for prospects and picks. No, you're but trading him to build something different around Lillard. I, my concern would be Damian Lillard getting frustrated after next year and causing some waves. I'm not saying he'll do that because he's always said he'd rather basically he's rather said he'd rather lose in Portland than win somewhere else. But losing this much has a way of changing things. So right. that I wouldn't want to touch that with the Bradley Beal stuff in Washington. It might be Indiana. They're like a good team if they're healthy. It'd be Indiana or New Orleans for me, just because you have Zion Williamson, who's a transcendent talent. It's just, do you trust the flexibility there in the front office to put the right talent around him? How do you feel about B.I. as a as a number two? I would feel pretty good. But it'd be between New Orleans and Indiana for me. I'm not basing this off of Milwaukee, by the way, just because Mike Budenholzer is still the coach. But if they lose against the Nets, you could definitely throw them into the mix. Yeah, fair. That does it for us. We did this in under an hour. Might be a little bit over an hour once we bake in some ads there. But this was fun. As always, everyone, remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you're getting your podcasts. Please, please, pretty please on top. Also, subscribe to us on YouTube. YouTube.com. Search Hardwood Knox. We will come up. Follow us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox as well. Spelled exactly as it sounds. Until next time, we leave you with the shout out to the one, the only, the driving force behind an amazing come from behind victory for the Atlanta Hawks sweet lemon pepper Lou